We're going to continue this morning uh, through our second uh, sermon in this uh, series that we're calling Marks of a Healthy Church. Last week we talked about uh, what is the church, and this week we're going to talk about uh, what is the gospel. Uh, What is the gospel, and uh, I'll introduce that in just a second, but before we do that, let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you again for this opportunity to worship you, and we pray now, Lord, that uh, by your grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, our hearts would be warmed and encouraged and reminded, God, of the glorious gospel, that which is the power of God for salvation, that which is the mystery that was hidden for long ages but has now been revealed in Jesus Christ, that which the angels long to look. Lord, and, and we thank you that we are partakers this day of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that uh, by virtue of that, Lord, we are ambassadors of the kingdom of Almighty God where citizenship into your kingdom is offered through the gospel, God, as we proclaim it to others, forgiveness of sins and life everlasting through Jesus the Son. And so, Lord, we just pray this morning that the gospel would be the center, God, of all that we do, that it would be the root and foundation of our lives, that it would be something that we preach to ourselves every day and something that we proclaim to others as a way of life. And so minister to us now today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we talk about what is the gospel. And as I said before, we, <clears throat> last time we talked about what is the church, and we said that we, we kind of had to know what the church is before we can talk about what it means to be a healthy church. And then the next thing I want to talk about uh, is what is the gospel, because <laughs> you, can't have a, you, you can't have a church, much less, much less a healthy church, if you don't have the gospel. Because it's the gospel that lays the foundation of the church, it's the gospel that creates the church, uh, uh, and w- without, the, without the gospel, there is no church. And so the great tragedy today is that there are many churches uh, in the United States and across the world today that this morning are filled with, you know, hundreds, thousands even of people. But that in God's eyes aren't even churches because the gospel is not there. <clears throat> and so if we're going to get it... <laughs> We have to get the gospel right. <clears throat> and so I'm going to do just two, two basic things this morning. Um, first, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just outline a number of false gospels that are proclaimed today. And you may recognize some of these, and, and perhaps some of these warnings will be helpful to us. And then at the end, I'm just going to outline as clearly and plainly as I can the true Gospel, that which is the power of God for salvation. But first, let's read our text this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3. <clears throat> Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The word of God. You may be seated. Paul writes about what he received as of first importance and what we note from this passage very briefly, is that, first of all, the gospel is of first importance. That means it is to be the preeminent thing in our lives as Christians and in our functioning as the church. And so the gospel cannot take second place to anything else in our lives, in our ministries, and that's important today. That, he says, I delivered to you of first importance what I received. That is, the gospel is something that that Paul himself received. It's something that we receive. It's something we're given. It's not something that we do. We're going to talk about that later. And that preeminently in this uh, verses, Paul says that all these things took place in accordance with the scriptures. That is, the gospel is preeminently revealed to us through God's word. And so what I want to do first this morning, before we get to the core of the gospel, is to outline a number of of false gospels or, or counterfeit gospels this morning and, and to maybe just try to think about these things a little more deeply so that we can have a more discerning ear when we hear things that are being said uh, in the public square. Okay, and much of this discussion uh, here is borrowed from Trevin Wax's book called Counterfeit Gospels, which I commend to you. It's a, it's a very good book. So <clears throat> the first... A false gospel that I want to talk about this morning is this. It's the therapeutic gospel. It's the therapeutic gospel. Uh, Trevin says that this gospel confuses our spiritual symptoms with our spiritual disease. Okay? It confuses our spiritual symptoms with our spiritual disease. Beware of this. Okay? According to the Bible, our spiritual disease is sin. Right? That's That's our most fundamental problem is sin. But people don't like to talk about sin anymore because it's offensive. Because I don't want to be, I don't think I'm a sinner. I don't think I'm that bad. People don't want to talk about sin. That's why the therapeutic gospel is so powerful and so popular today. Because rather than addressing the root of the problem, namely sin, it addresses the symptoms of the problem. Namely, the bad things that happen in your life. So rather than addressing the disease, it just addresses the symptoms. Because people are fine if you talk about how bad their bad relationships are or their, or their uh, lack of prosperity is or their sicknesses are, the problems they face in life. They're fine if you talk about those. Just don't tell them that some of it is a result of their personal sin. But you can talk about everything else. It's fine. And of course... And so, and so it confuses the spiritual disease with the spiritual symptoms. The sin, the problem, according to the therapeutic gospel, the problem is not at root sin or personal sin. And of course, the sins of others and then the sinful structures in the world. That's not the root problem. Our main problems is just the bad things in our life or bad marriage or bad finances or bad job, bad relationship, bad health. In this false gospel, the sin isn't something that separates us from God. Notice that. 
the problem is not our separation from God. The problem is our, is our lack of, of happiness. In other words, we're not happy as we would like to be. So Christianity then becomes not about how we can be forgiven of our sins and reunited with the holy God, but Christianity becomes about how you can have your best life now. About how every day can be a Friday. About how if you just think positive thoughts, then everything's going to be okay and you can speak good things into existence. That's the therapeutic gospel. Many people... uh, there's this pretty popular movie that came out quite some time ago now called uh, a Nicholas Sparks movie called A Walk to Remember. Maybe you remember that movie. Lots of people, like, lots of even Christians liked that movie because it, it, had a little, it had a Christian girl in there. And, uh, and it painted Christians in you know, a somewhat nice light, which is rare for movies these days. But, but there's a part in this movie, there's a conversation that she has with her dad where her dad is telling her that she shouldn't date an unbeliever, as a believer, as a dad should do. And this is how the conversation goes. The dad says, the dad tells her, you might not care what I say or think, but you should care about God's opinion. And her reply was, in the movie, her reply was, I think God wants me to be happy. What is that? It's the therapeutic gospel. It's the gospel that says God's ultimate goal in the world is not his glory, but my happiness. In other words, it's the gospel that's about me. And, how, and we just presume that God's ideas of ultimate and everlasting happiness must be the exact same as mine. It's the therapeutic gospel. Of course, probably the most famous version of the therapeutic gospel is what we call the prosperity gospel. And it it has many of the same things we've just talked about already. Sin is unhappiness. To get rid of unhappiness, I must have faith. And I exercise that faith by thinking positive thoughts, by naming and claiming my blessings, by getting rid of negativity and negative persons out of my life. That's all over Facebook. If I give Joel Osteen $1,000, God will bless that, that seed money by making me win the lottery next week. And in the prosperity gospel, what happens is that God becomes a vending machine. Because if I do the right things, think the right thoughts, say the right things, then God's going to bless me. And that's what I really want. Not God's glory, but God's blessing in this life, in this age, at this time, right now. You see, the false, this false gospel is so attractive because it preys on human nature to be happy, secure, and blessed In this age, when Jesus only promises those blessings in the age to come. And in fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart because I have overcome the world. Where Jesus said things like, don't store store up your treasures on earth. Where things things can steal it and things can destroy it. But store up your treasure in heaven. In other words, our Christian hope is not in... Blessing in this age, but in the age to come. And we, got to, we, we have to get that right. And this gospel is so dangerous because, because it offers you nothing when tragedy strikes your life. You will be utterly disillusioned 
And if you don't give up on God altogether, which is what many people do who've imbibed this false gospel and, and tragedy strikes, if you don't give up on God altogether, then what will, what will happen is you'll be overwhelmed with this, this false guilt that if only I had believed more, if only if I had more faith, it would have worked out better. Beware the therapeutic gospel. Number two, the second counterfeit gospel that is popular today is the judgmentless gospel. It's the judgmentless gospel. And it goes like this. How could a loving God judge people? How could he send people to hell? You see, it's paradoxical to me how common this view is today when today in our culture there seems to be a hyper-focus on the concept of justice. And so... The fact that so many people hold this view is, is quite paradoxical to me. If somebody injures us in a personal way, the first thing we want to do is say they should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. I want justice. If I don't get justice, it's wrong. It's bad. We demand justice for ourselves. But when the Bible says God demands justice for himself, we say, whoa, God. Take it down a notch, bro. Chill out. Excuse me? If anyone gets justice in the universe, should it not be God Almighty? You think you want justice for yourself, but you won't let God have his? You want justice for the wrong committed against you, but you don't want God to take justice for your wrongs that you committed against him? Beware the judgmentless gospel. You see, I believe that there is this soft universalism, which is the belief that everyone will be saved, a soft version of universalism that is is quite prominent today, I believe, even within the church. That is that many people, quite uncritically, are happy to believe that most people are going to go to heaven. That most people are basically fine. You know, most people are basically going to get to heaven. If anybody goes to hell, you know, maybe Hitler. That's about it. But do you see what that kind of thought does? You know what it says? It basically says this. It says that the path to heaven is wide. And the path to hell is narrow. But do you remember what Jesus said? Matthew seven thirteen. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You see, we want to swap that. It's a lot easier to want to swap that today. Oh, most people are going to go to heaven and only a few people go to hell. But Jesus says the opposite. Jesus says, you want to get into heaven? It's not easy. It's easy. It's easy to go to hell. It's hard to get into heaven. It's hard. It's entered by the narrow gate, Jesus said. The judgmentless gospel is dangerous in a number of ways. First, of course, is unfaithful to the scriptures. It's just not true. Second, the degree to which we subtly accept The judgmentless gospel is the degree to which we lose the urgency and the force 
of our gospel proclamation. I heard something the other day that really just kind of shook me up a little bit. It was a, a, a Muslim man. He, he's passed away. He was a young man. He recently just passed away. His name was Nabil Qureshi. He's a, he's a Christian apologist, a great man of God. He died of cancer. He was in his 30s uh, just a year or two ago. But he was, he was being interviewed, and he was a Muslim. He, he was raised in a Muslim context, um, and he was a Muslim. And he came to America, and he was learning about Christianity, and there was something that he said that he couldn't figure out. He said that he would talk to Christians, and nobody would, nobody would share the gospel with him or tell him that he needed to come to Christ. And he said, and, he said, and I was thinking about it, and I concluded this. That either one, they didn't believe what they said they believed, or two, they didn't care if I went to hell. Because no one would share the gospel with them. The, 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 the extent to which we believe the judgmentless gospel, our urgency and the force of, uh, we lose the urgency and the force of our gospel proclamation because we subtly think in our minds, well, everyone's just kind of going to be okay. Everyone's not going to be okay. And we have the solution to people's greatest needs. And it must be told and proclaimed to them. So beware the judgmentless gospel. The therapeutic gospel, the judgmentless gospel. Number three, beware the moralistic gospel. The moralistic gospel. The moralistic gospel is the gospel primarily about living a better life. About becoming a better person. On the extreme end, it is that false legalistic gospel where salvation is equivalent to rule keeping. Now, I, people who grew up in conservative churches, I believe, have a, have a tendency to believe this false gospel. Where, a certain, where Christianity is, being a Christian means I have a certain amount of church attendance, a certain type of, I've mastered a certain type of Christian lingo, and I avoid certain kinds of behaviors, and boom, I'm saved. That's the sum total of being a Christian. It's the moralistic gospel. The moralistic gospel says, you get your act together, and then maybe God can do something with you. The reason why this gospel is so easy to slip into <clears throat> is because a changed life really is central to the Christian faith. It really is. It really is central to the Christian faith. However, the order is of utmost importance. Because, because Christianity is not first and foremost about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. And so if we leave people with the impression that to be saved they have to do, do, do more, we're preaching a false gospel. Because being saved ultimately has nothing to do with what we do, but what God has done. We can slip into the moralistic gospel even post-conversion with the lie that it is God who gets us in, but, that it, but then it is we who have to keep ourselves in. <clears throat> I've personally struggled with this, and, and I believe many others do too. Because when, this is your, when you have subtly imbibed this view, what happens is that your, your Christian faith to you is primarily, you primarily think about it in terms of your performance. 
And for you, God is not first and foremost a father who loves you, but a taskmaster who's leering over you, waiting to crack the whip the second you get out of line. Jesus is like the doorkeeper who got us into the house, but now we're constantly walking on eggshells around the master of the household. Can't quite do enough to make him happy. We've slipped into the moralistic gospel when being a Christian feels more like a duty than a delight. When it, when, it feels, when it feels more like being a slave than being a son. Now, of course, we are slaves of God. We are servants of God, but we're also sons of God. And so that changes the way we relate to God. The gospel, by definition, the Greek word is euangelion. It means good news. That's what the word itself means. The gospel then in its basic form is not first something, it's not something you have to do at all. It's what God has already done. It is what Paul has received and delivered as a first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's news. It's a proclamation. God isn't waiting on you to get your act together. God so loved the world that he gave his only son precisely because you couldn't get your act together. And he loved you in spite of the fact that you couldn't get your act together. To the point that he gave his son to forgive you of your sins. So that if you see how great the father's love for us. You'll come to him and embrace him. And when you understand the depth of the love of God for his people through Jesus Christ, and you feel it in your heart, God's love for you will change you. It will change you. But a changed life is not the gospel. God's mercy through Jesus Christ is the gospel. Beware the moralistic gospel. And finally, the final false gospel I want to mention is the activist gospel. It's the activist gospel. Like the therapeutic gospel confuses sin with the effects of sin, so the activist gospel confuses the gospel with the effects of the gospel. That is, generally speaking, the activist gospel has a focus on changing society. And we do know, of course, that the gospel can change society. And any society with a large number of, Christi- a large number of people who embrace the gospel will indeed be an improved society. I believe that strongly. But, and I, I think this is important, but changing society is not the goal of the gospel. Why? Because because societies and nations and states are temporary. They don't last. They won't be here in a billion years, but the kingdom of God will. Changing society is not the goal of the gospel. 
But, however, the reason why the activist gospel is so popular today, because it does have a lot right. It does make us care about society. It does make us care about issues of justice and helping the poor and the needy and the outcast. And on top of this, we, it's a unique aspect of this uh, because we live in the United States is that as citizens of the United States who live as citizens of a democratic republic, we have rights and privileges and responsibilities that most other people in the world don't have. That is that we really can affect societal change through democratic processes, through exercising our right to vote, through getting the word out about things, through grassroots campaigning, through marches and, what, and whatever we want to do. We have a right to do that. And as Christians, I do believe we have the responsibility to try to affect changes in society that will be for the overall good. And since we have these opportunities to do that, like the, that our, say our brothers and, and sister, Christian brothers and sisters in China can't exercise, we should exercise them. We should do them. We should vote. We should try to do things that will work for the good of our society. There are evils in this world that should indeed stood again, be stood against. However, the primary danger with the activist gospel is that Jesus becomes supplanted as the center and uniting focus of the church. And of course, the problem is, is that this can be very subtle because it's easy to give lip service as Jesus as the center when in reality, what the group may be organizing themselves around is the cause and not the Christ. So beware of associating yourself first with the cause rather than with the Christ. Because the Christ must always come first. The difference between the true gospel and the activist gospel is that in the true gospel, Jesus is the key and primary agent of change. That is that we're looking to Christ as the one who, and the only one who can make an ultimate difference in the world and in the lives of others. We have slipped into the activist gospel when, or when we are subtly or believe or we lose our focus on Christ and our focus shifts from Christ as the key agent of change to the government as the key agent of change. Oh, if we can just get this passed. Oh, if we can just get this person voted in. Oh, if, this, oh, if we can just uh, get... The, only if this one political thing can take place, then finally things will be okay. No, it won't. Until sin is eradicated from the world, everything's not going to be okay. And only Jesus can take away sin. And so it's dangerous because the shift can be so subtle that we don't even recognize it. That's why I say so often, if we must be known as something, let it be known as Christian before it is anything else. And by the way, it's a, it's, this is important because, because other people can tell, okay? People can just tell what's most important to you. People can just tell. It's the way, you, the way you talk about issues, the language in which you speak of them, the emotion with which you speak of them. People can tell if your central concern when you're talking about an issue is Christ or something else. They can just tell. They always can. An example of it, for example, there are good causes that I believe we can and indeed should support that we have. 
that we, we must support. For example, I think of things like the pro-life movement. I think regardless of where you stand on other issues, every Bible-believing follower of Jesus Christ should be able to agree that life is sacred from the womb to the tomb. I believe that. That it is not our prerogative to get to decide who has a chance of life and who doesn't. But I will say that if we are pro-life before we are Christian, then our pro-life stance actually loses its power. Because then all we have become is another cog in the political machine. But if our pro-life stance is rooted in the unshakable conviction that life cannot be violated because God made it sacred. And if we believe that we should stand for pro-life because abortion is murder of the divine image bearers of God Almighty. But that God through Christ and the gospel can forgive the sin of abortion and can radically change the lives of people who have been involved in it. Then that's different. And if we really believe then that that. Uh, men and women who come into our pregnancy care centers that can be changed not just temporally but eternally by the gospel of Jesus Christ and that maybe some children can be who would otherwise have been aborted to be placed in godly Christian homes be raised in the fear of the Lord then that makes all the difference but if we do all these things without Christ at the center it's a waste of time so the question is this how Do we talk about the issues that we care about the most? Do we talk about them from a Christ-centered perspective? Or one that would fit perfectly fine on CNN or Fox News? Because guess what? When you bring Jesus, you can talk about politics all day, but when you bring Jesus into the conversation, people start getting uncomfortable. How do you talk about the issues you care about the most? Is it from a Christ-centered perspective, or would it fit in just fine without Christ? What are we looking to as the real change agent in the world, God or the government? Christ or the cause? In our general conversations with other people, what aroma are they left with? The aroma of Christ or of something else? What taste is left in their mouths when we speak to other people? Do they come away from the conversation thinking, man, they really care about Christ? Or thinking they really care about something else? Beware the therapeutic gospel. Beware the judgmentless gospel. The moralistic gospel and the activist gospel. So if all these things are false gospels, then what is the true gospel? I'm glad you asked. We have to get the gospel right because we have to get because we have to get everything right and the gospel is everything. The gospel is the true story, right? Everyone everyone out there's telling a story. What you think is most important all relates to what you believe this what story you believe you're a part of. And what we're saying as Christians is that there is a true story that's centered about God. In Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. It's the true story of the world and your place in it. And if we get the story right, everything else will fall into place. But if we get the story wrong, we'll be out of focus. So what's the true story? What's the true gospel? It's very, 
it really, it's very simple. I'm going to explain it in three parts. Number one, the Creator God. The Creator God. I want us to be reminded of this and refresh this and think about this deeply so that maybe this will better help you equip to share Christ with others. And maybe this morning you don't know Christ. I want you to think about what I'm saying because what I'm saying this morning is I'm saying that what I'm about to tell you is the power of God for salvation if you embrace it in your life. An eternal difference can be made today in our lives. So the first point of the true gospel is that there is a creator God. The very first words of the Bible was that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The single phrase tells us some of the most important parts of reality itself. That is that there is one God who made and rules over all things, by whom, through whom, and for whom all things exist. Therefore, we don't get to make up the reason why we're here, but God has to tell us why we're here. We don't get to make up a purpose for our life. God tells us the purpose for our lives because he's the one who made us and who put us here. We don't get to determine why we're here. God does because he is the creator God. He is the God king who rules over all things. This tells us a totally different story. It tells us the very, the very first sentence in the Bible tells us that the Bible as a whole in the whole story of the world is not ultimately about you or me, but it's about God Almighty. The, humble, the, the reason why the true gospel is so unacceptable to so many people is because it means that the world is not about you. It's about God. It's about him and his glory and the work that he's doing in the world. You see, all these false gospels that we talked about, one thing that they have in common is they all tend to put us at the center. Our earthly happiness, our destiny, our works... Our status in life. When in reality, God is at the center, not us. We exist primarily not to be concerned about our business, but about God's business. We were made for God by God. And I would add on top of all this, that the greatest happiness then that we as creatures could ever possibly experience is to live in full relationship in the way that God designed us to work. And so it's not as if our happiness is sometimes is somehow opposite of what God wants for us. God, I would say God really does want us to be truly happy. But the, the difference between our understanding of happiness and his is that God knows that true happiness can only come from knowing him. From living for him, for, from, from being who we were made to be, not who we decide we are. So the first and key part of the gospel is that there is a creator God to whom we owe all things and before whom we all shall one day give an account. And that brings us to the next part of the true gospel. And that is, number two, is fallen man. Creator God and fallen man. You see, it's the first reality that makes the second reality so tragic. And that is that deep down we all know that we bear great and unbelievable dignity as human beings. We don't know why. We can't explain it. But deep down we know that human life is sacred. The reason is because we were made by God for God in the divine image. 
to share his goodness and to share his authority and to fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the earth in relationship with God. Reflecting him and his goodness and wisdom over all the world. Man was created for this unbelievable calling and privilege to rule the earth under God's kind and gracious rule. That's the height for which we were made. That's the dignity that we all have as image bearers of God Almighty. And that's what makes it so tragic that we have all fallen in sin. In Adam and Eve who rebelled against God, who ate that fruit Saying in that moment, I know what will make me happy better than God does. They didn't. And you don't either. We have all fallen. And yet to this day, we are just like our first parents. We keep thinking that we know better than God. We keep thinking that we know what will make us happier more than God does. We keep thinking, oh, if I could just have this and this and this and all these tiny fleeting things rather than having God, then I'd just truly be happy. We're fallen. We have rebelled. We have looked up consciously or unconsciously, looked up to heaven and shaken our tiny little fists up at God and said, not thy will be done, but my will be done. We are all fallen. We are all broken. And then the Bible says that sin leads to death. God told Adam and Eve, if you eat the fruit, you'll surely die. The apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death. When you sin, you die. When you rebel against the giver of life, you lose your right to life. That's how it works. So sin leads to death. And the Bible says that at this very moment, our hearts and the whole creation groan, the whole creation groans with the weight of sin. All the, every wrong thing in the world is a result of sin. The, the brokenness, deep down, we all know that we're not as we ought to be. We all know that our relationships aren't as they ought to be. Our relationship with God isn't as it ought to be. This world, we look out in the world and we just know, we can't explain it, but we know something's wrong. It's all because of sin. And because of sin, we are separated from God. We're enemies of God. And this is the thrust of the, and this is, this is the great story of the world. That our greatest problem is not a lack of prosperity. It's not sickness or disease. It's not economic or social inequality. Our greatest problem is alienation from God before whom we shall one day give an account for our lives for what we did with what he gave us. That's our greatest problem. And it doesn't matter if you're on top of the world in this life. If you stand before God with nothing to show him, you've wasted it. You've wasted it. That's our greatest problem. So this, it doesn't mean that we don't care about other things, but it does mean that we care about this the most. And in Christianity, your focus is important. Even if we take a good thing, but then we make a good thing the main thing, we've messed up. We've, we've lost it. And I think that's one of our greatest dangers today. The why matters. The for whom we are doing what we're doing matters. And we can help people. It is possible to help people in a way that communicates that their greatest need is something other than Jesus Christ. And even if we're helping people in that way, if we're communicating that their greatest need is something other than Jesus Christ, we're actually hurting and not helping. Because we're making them comfortable as they stroll on 
kindly, without a care, with full of, full of a self-esteem, straight to hell. And we've done nobody any good. Our greatest problem is our sin. And that brings us to the final and most important point, and that is a redeeming Christ. A redeeming Christ. The climax of this story, the central figure of this book, the most important being who ever lived, who will ever live, the the one who has a name, the Bible says, that is above every name in heaven or on earth or under the earth, is the man Jesus Christ. He is the center of the story. And it is all about him. And he is so because he willingly, in obedience to the Father, came into this world and took on all the weaknesses of human flesh to deal with your greatest problem. Your sin. To take it on himself. To live the life of perfection that you owe to God but you couldn't give to him. He lived it for you. And he died on the cross paying the penalty for your sin that you should pay to God. He stepped in and said, I'll take it on me and I'll pay it for you. And since sin leads to death, through the cross sin is forgiven. Therefore, forgiven sin has no power. Therefore, the power of death is destroyed. Therefore, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, giving the sure and guaranteed hope that everyone who finds forgiveness of their sins through Christ... By by trusting in him and believing him and following him, they too shall one day rise like he did to eternal life in a world free from sin. That's good news. That's really good news. And it has nothing to do with you. It's got everything to do with God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. Your greatest problem alleviated. And you can live a glorious, sacrificial, self-giving, self-denying, incredible life of love for God and love for others in this age. And then when he calls you home, all the treasures of heaven will be waiting for you. That is good news. That God has come to deliver us of our sin and give us the hope of eternal life. Creator God, fallen man, redeeming Christ. And so the plea today is this. Believe in him. Trust in him. And if you know him, tell others about him. Tell others about their greatest need and the great solution that has been given in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for...